expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. These are old major's thoughts, the principles of animalism. We must always remember what he taught us. What is important is that we must never come to resemble man in any way. One, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Two, whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. After all, we are animals. Three, no animal shall wear clothes. Four, no animal shall sleep in a bed. We can no longer stoop to his level. Five, no animal shall drink alcohol or engage in trade. Six, no animal shall kill any other animal. Fighting each other is the nature of man. Ah, Pincher, sit down. And most importantly, seven. Amongst us animals, there must be unity and comradeship. All animals are equal. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 18, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. And today on the show, join us because we're all going to be living on an animal farm. That's one of the themes today as Robert takes a look at animal rights and some of the things going around about egalitarianism for animals and uh, people. I think he's going to set out to try and prove that species egalitarianism is for the birds, eh, Robert? Well put, Bob, well put. (laughs) And for my part, later on in the show, we plan to answer some email we've gotten on the show, particularly one relating to our show a couple weeks ago from an email writer, Therese, who questioned some of our research on landfills and uh, recycling, and we'll deal with that at the end of the show. And another issue I want to deal with today later on in the show as well is the whole issue of online voting, which we hear discussing, being discussed, and uh, mailing and voting and things like that. And um, so basically um, the issue is there. I think it's wrong and I'll tell people why. I think it's the final indignity to democracy, really. And uh, so Robert, you wanted to start off with, oh by the way, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And of course we don't say this often enough, you can email us at justwritechrw at gmail.com. Visit the website, two websites actually, chrwradio.com or www.justrightmedia.org where you can get all of our past shows archived. Every one we've done, amazingly. Robert, so tell, tell us about this whole, or what even started you off on looking into this issue. Actually, Bob, it was an article I found from Switzerland that caught my eye at swissinfo.ch. It's an AP article, actually, and um, it had to do with a plebiscite, if you will, that um, an animal rights group got together to put on the ballot, which just... Um, was held on March 7th. And I'll read you the article here from uh, SwissInfo.ch. Projections so show Swiss voters have rejected a plan to appoint special lawyers for animals that have been abused by humans. 71% of voters cast their ballot against the proposed 
proposal by animal rights activists to extend nationwide a system already in place in Zurich since 1992. Switzerland tightened its animal protection laws two years ago and now has among the strictest rules anywhere when it comes to caring for pets and farm animals. Pigs, budgies, goldfish, and other social animals cannot be kept alone. Horses and cows must have regular exercise outside their stalls. And dog owners have to take a training course to learn how to properly look after their pets. Tiana Angelina Moser, a lawmaker for the Green Liberal Party, said animal rights campaigners would now be looking for other ways to make sure laws against animal abuse are properly applied and those who hurt them receive appropriate punishment. And that's from the Associated Press. Now, where, where, what jurisdiction did this occur in? It's in Switzerland. And, and, but most people rejected it. Yes, 71% of voters cast their ballot against the proposal, which means that 29% were in favor of it, which is astonishing. It is. That 29% of the Swiss would like to see animals actually protected by lawyers in courts, have an appointed lawyer for them, as if they were human beings. Well... You know, there's a big difference between cruelty to animals and animal ownership and, and responsible ownership of yeah, animals. Yeah, there definitely is. Yeah. And that ob- obviously this obscures the whole thing. And, to, and the whole concept of animal rights, is that something you're going to be getting into? Yes. Okay. As a matter of fact, for the next uh, 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about just that thing. And it wasn't just this article. I, you just look in the Free Press and the Globe and Mail just recently. The, um, we see continued opposition to the seal hunt in Canada. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now. Yep, two pinup models called the Bar- Twins oh, say that they are boycotting. <laughs> <laughs> say they're boycotting coming to Canada unless the government bans the seal hunt permanently. Shane Barbie Wall, that is her name, by the way, said that <laughs> quote: "The people around the world hate you guys for killing defenseless babies." Yeah, defenseless babies. Note the, note the term of the or, uh, use of the yeah. word term babies to apply to seals. Um, those who well, they're seal babies. Uh, actually, not. They're, no? We don't. They, <laughs> no? The seal hunt doesn't even kill the pups anymore. <laughs> oh, don't they? <laughs> no, they don't, it's just the uh, adult seals. Those who anthropomorphize well, now that's animals. That's interesting in and of itself. They don't kill the pups anymore. No, the seal pup um, hunt has, has been abolished, as far as I as far as I know. So, uh, including the use of a uh, hack a pick. So, so maybe their maybe their information's a little bit behind. Oh, totally. The yeah, <laughs> not only their information on the seal hunt, but their information on what it means to be a human being well, versus an animal. <laughs> that's about two thousand years behind. Yeah. However, the seal hunt issue. This is dated March sixteenth, and that's like not long ago. No, no, it was just a couple uh, days know. ago, two days ago. Okay, <laughs> so we're still getting old information oh, yes, right. completely wrong. I got another radical here from the Globe and Mail, March 16th, same day, uh, and, and shows a picture of uh, a young lady who has painted her face to look like a little seal pup and spread blood all over herself on the ground, and mm-hmm. she's lying down at the International Day of Action Against Seal Hunting. Amazing. Anyway, I think it's I blame uh, Walt Disney and <laughs> <laughs> Bambi hey. because they anthropomorphize animals. Um, they believe that they're guilty of believing a non-concept, something called animal rights. It's the mixing of categories, as Ayn Rand might say. Rights apply only to a rational animal man, while other animals only have status in our world. Something actually you brought up when we talked with, with Ann Coulter just last week about uh, the unborn and the newborn. Yes. They have status, not rights. Different status, mind you. It's not all the same. It's not an egalitarian oh, yeah. status. No, 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 yeah. no, no. It's, it's, it seems to be a, an accrual of as rights as you get older. 
Um, as someone once said, and I think you told me this once before, says, um, I'll give animals rights, animals rights once they ask for them. That was actually uh, famed libertarian economist Murray Rothbard. That's Murray, was it? Uh, uh, who wrote that, yeah. Beautiful, because this bit of humor actually spells out a requirement for rights, and that is the ability of being rational enough to be able to identify even what a right is. And he applied it not just to animals, but also to the potential of our meeting... Um, perhaps intelligent life in outer space someday. That's a topic I'd like to get into with you at some we point. We certainly in the will. Yeah. How to, if a sentient life form came to Earth, would we give him rights? Would rights apply to them? I'd be more concerned whether they would give us rights. <laughs> that might be the case, yeah. <laughs> so, so let's not worry about that one yet. These people, Bob, who believe in animal rights are guilty of something I'd classify as immoral. That is, de denigrating their own stature as a human while elevating the status of non-rational animals. Now, you know, some people might argue that morality is, that's what makes us moral, is that we can think of the other being. We can think of the other person and consider their well-being, not just our own. Yeah, that's because these people don't know what the word morality means. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> morality, Bob, is yeah. acting according to one's own nature. So, in other words, for a human to be moral, he has to act as, in a rational way because man's mm -hmm. nature is the rational animal. So if you act rationally, you're acting morally. But one, you know, I, I might argue, well, it's also rational not to harm animals. It can be rational not to harm animals, yes. And as it, long as that it is yourself and your life that is the uh, the central focus of why you're. Oh acting yes, never at a sacrifice to yourself. No, no. So that's that's morality. And mm -hmm. what people don't just they throw around that word moral rights or morality. Uh, willy-nilly, not even knowing what it means or doing any sort of research, finding out or the definition of it, the definition of rights, the definition of morality. They just have this fuzzy feeling of what it means to be moral. You know, usually some sort of Judeo-Christian uh, Normally, Normally, and every time I've looked at the issue of morality, it has to do with sex. That's the number one issue on people's oh. mind <laughs> when you mention the word moral. And it's, it's funny, pleasure. yeah, and, and it's funny that in this case, morality is being dragged into um, this egalitarianism issue. Which yes. I guess is a moral issue, too. Well, it is. Yeah. It, oh, it definitely is, yeah. If defined pr uh, properly. Also, another thing that's happening, Bob, is the growing number of vegans in the world. It's, a, it's another indication of the belief that using animals is counter to natural and immoral. The exact opposite, of course, is true. Vegan is a term coined by Donald Watson in 1944. In his own definition, it is, quote... It denotes a philosophy and way of living which seeks to exclude, as far as it is possible and practical, all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose. And by extension, promotes the development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefit of humans, animals, and the environment. In dietary terms, which is the term we usually associate it with it, it denotes the practice of dispensing with all products derived wholly or partly from animals. Note, Bob, that the goal is to the benefit of humans, yet denying humans animals derived food and clothing can't be considered a benefit unless he's thinking of some fairy tale land benefit. The goal is to benefit animals and the environment as well, as if man should sacrifice himself for the benefit of animals and the environment. Total, total lunacy. Yes, and I also note there is a, an equi equivalence of, um, what was it, Cru cruelty and exploitation, as though the two things were the same thing. Exactly, and if define, uh, exploitation in the broadest sense of the word it just simply means use of. And it's fascinating because um, 
the opening theme to our show today was taken from a British version of, of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yes, loved it. And um, it was an interesting version. You'll hear a couple more clips from it later on in the show as the show goes on. But, of course, in that, uh, these very principles were being elucidated in that very show. And, and uh, George Orwell, of course, wrote the book, um, Animal Farm. And uh, I wish I knew which version this was because in it, um, the animals are played by real animals with voiceovers and mixed mm. in with humans. It's not a cartoon nor a completely, uh, um, you know, human issue. Right. But uh, what an interesting show it is in terms of uh, what it says about people and egalitarianism and the idea that animals won't exploit each other. That becomes a big issue. Yeah. I've read the book. I've never yeah. seen that movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just to get back on the veganism, if you don't eat meat or any other animal products because you believe it to be healthier for you, Bob, I believe that that, that would be a proper moral choice. Yes, because that's at the a center, rational choice. At the center of your choice is yourself. Not the animal, but yourself. You're not eating meat or having byproducts because of your own health. And if you don't eat meat because you equate an animal's life to be equal to your own, then what would be an immoral cho- that would be an immoral choice, cheapening your own life and raising the life of an animal to the status of humans. Just not, just not done. And what I find ironic... Bob, is that prior to a technological and capitalist world, vegans couldn't even survive. They need the variety of fresh fruit and vegetables only available in a global free market. And they need the the vitamin supplements, calcium, vitamin B12, vitamin D, iron, and iodine, available only through the advancement made by science and technology in a capitalist world. And I'm only mentioning this because... Which, of course, otherwise we could only get through meat, is what you're saying. Or right, animal byproducts. Of yeah, some and sort. meat and yeah. fat and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I only mention this, Bob, because vegans, for the most part, share many of the beliefs of the left of the political spectrum anti industrial, socialist, anti capitalist, anti technological, and above all, egalitarian. And when we come back from the break, that's what I'm going to be talking about is egalitarianism in animal rights. Excellent. Okay, well, let's go to that break now. And knowledge is power. Well, the knowledge I'd like is who keeps stealing the milk and apples. That's what I call knowledge. Share and share alike. Isn't that animalism? Well, where's our share? Animals, please. Who has the milk and apples? Who has the milk and apples? Who has the milk and television here for your enjoyment and relaxation. This, my friends, is animalism in practice. But it is also animalism for us pigs to have the milk and apples. I'm off. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW. I'm Robert Vaughn, joined with Robert Metz. 
And you can join in the conversation at 519-661-3600. And just before that break, we were talking about animal rights, and now we're going to get into a little bit more philosophical term, uh, egalitarianism and and, and what that means as far as the animal rights movement goes. And I've do, been, been doing a bit of mm. research, Bob, and uh, found a guy named uh, Tom, Re- Tom Regan. He's a leading proponent of animal rights and a professor emeritus of philosophy at North Carolina State University. And he, gar- he argues that animals are entities which possess, quote, inherent value and therefore have, what he quotes as, basic moral rights. And that the principal moral right that they possess is the right to respectful treatment. Regan additionally argues that animals have a basic moral right not to be harmed, which can be overridden only when the individual's rights not to be harmed is morally outweighed by other valid moral principles. Boy, he's throwing that word moral around like it's <laughs> candy. Well, it is candy for him. It means It's meaningless. It is meaningless. <laughs> Absolutely meaningless. Yeah. You know, from this rights view, Regan argues that animal agriculture, as we know it, is unjust, even when animals are raised humanely. Now, Tom Regan is wrong in so many ways, and he's a He's a Ph.D. Boy, I tell you, to get Ph.D.s anybody these days. If animals possess inherent values, we should not necessarily conclude, therefore, that they have rights. You know, it well, jumps the, from one thing to another. Yeah, value to who? Exactly. My computer has inherent value to me. What's the value? The but value is the meat. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, the, me- the value is yes. the meat. Right. And if they have a, a right to respectful treatment, then I guess when one animal kills another, you've got to put that animal in jail. <laughs> I mean, it's so ridiculous. Well, it's totally ludicrous. I just can't believe that we live with people in this world who actually believe stuff like this. Animals killed by human beings have it easy compared to any animal killed in nature. Oh, for sure. Nature is relentless and cruel. And cruel, 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 Every cruel, animal cruel. out in the wild is living in dire, deathly fear every Constantly. second of the day. Yes. Every second of the day they could be eaten by, by one of their own kind. It just blows me away that people are so detached. Yeah. You're talking about value. I mean, property has value. My computer has a value sure. inherent in it. It's, it, it. That's what its purpose is. It is valuable. It is my property. Yeah, as, as are all animals. All animals are property. They have status as such, not rights. And I think that we have to drive home the point of what that means. Status, not rights. Like I said before, we alluded to it before with Ann Coulter, and that rights have to be defended. And if you can't defend your rights, you have no right. That's correct. You have status. Now, status as well, too, depends on who the owner is. Uh, you know, when you say owner, that might be a little too far for some people to take. You know, when you're talking about the commons, you know, the, the government, mm-hmm. uh, although technically you can say they own, they own the animals because yes. they are responsible for that is, that is the correct. stewardship of the land, so to speak. For example, the seal hunt. Um, the government has responsibility for those animals and um, can quite rightly limit our uh, catch of them. Total allowable catch. I think it was like sixty-nine thousand or something within our jurisdiction. Animals. And that's why you within get, our jurisdiction. That's why you get into problems on the open seas, and why you right. have issues with species depletion because there's competing governments, right? Who who aren't abiding and aren't doing that thing, or one wants more than the other, you know, and that and and you get disputes about these issues all the time. Right. And before anybody out there starts to think that um, when we're talking about the fact that animals don't have rights, that does not necessarily give anybody license to go out there and treat them cruelly to decimate a species to the detriment of the economy as a large, uh, large or anything like that. It does not give license to do that. Because as I said before, animals are property. And if I own an animal, then that, that, that piece of property of mine uh, has, like I say, legal status as such. 
and you just can't destroy something like that unless it's done humanely. We have, we can have laws. Um, you know, it's, it's my, interesting. My house, my house is property, but I can't burn it down. Correct. Example. I was just going to say, even inanimate objects have certain different statuses in law mm -hmm. that do not allow you to to even though it's your own property, mm -hmm. uh, to do certain things with them. Some of the things might be uh, certain chemicals, very dangerous chemicals right. that might need to be disposed in certain ways. I mean, you can criminally dispose of it, of course, if, yes. if you're prone to do so, but that doesn't make it right. And, and you doesn't can criminally make it... dispose of an animal, sure. too, or criminally treat it as well. So uh, anti-cruelty laws are not necessarily what we're talking about here. We're talking about the inherent value of an animal and whether or not it has rights versus status. You know, Regan, back to Tom Regan here, because he says that a basic moral right is the use of his term. There's only one fundamental right, Bob, and that's the right to life. And that right is a concept applied only to man in a social context, you know, not to animals. Even a man on a desert island doesn't have any rights. And even, even so, it must always be borne in mind that anything that's referred to as a right generally pertains to action. Yes, not always. Not to being, not to anything else, but to action. Yep, and usually the negation of action. In our, in our sense of the word. If I have a right to life, it means that you, you don't have the right to take it. In other words, you have to refrain from taking my life, my liberty, my property. Well, it, that might be the effect, but the real, but the real um, instigation of that is you having the right to, to defend yourself. Yes. Right? And yes. so if well, I choose to attack to you, well, but the, but the primary right, I would say, is the right to self-defense. Action. And, and, and to that action, yes. Right. Because that's why you say, if, even if you kill someone in self-defense, it's considered justifiable, which is another yes. status. It's not saying it's right to go around killing people, <laughs> but it is justifiable. It is, it is a form of rightness. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Right. Now, he wrote a book, uh, Tom Regan wrote a book called The Case for Animal Rights. And in that, he points out that we routinely ascribe inherent value and thus the right to be treated with respect to humans who are not rational, including infants and the severely mentally impaired. And I'm glad he actually considered that. But, of course, he fails to understand that infants, the severely mentally retarded or impaired, and even many elderly don't have rights in our society. They have status. An infant or a child is simply not permitted to exercise the right that an adult is. We, we, we routinely lock up people who are mentally impaired or infirm due to old age. And yet we want to make sure that chickens aren't kept in cages and aren't allowed to roam free by right. Mm. <laughs> you know, you know that speaks to another reason um, to support anti-cruelty laws in a way, because even if you're doing this to people and you have the right to lock them up for the safety of others, does that give you the right to be cruel to them? I don't think no. so. No, it does not. And partially that comes from all of us being concerned that we ourselves might find ourselves in that situation one day. Exactly. You know, that yeah. to me extends the whole... Uh, premise of rights. It's the rights of the able who can extend their rights, especially in a freer and capitalistic society, over the less able. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in a legitimate way, when government starts doing it well and things go wrong, and we know all about that. <laughs> it's interesting you speak, bring that up. I was re reading something about something called the veil of ignorance. I'd love to be able to get into that some other point in time about mm -hmm. how, how would we ascribe rights if we didn't know whether or not we were going to be the ones to be in, uh, in the position of having your rights removed. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into, in the last five minutes here before the bottom of the hour, about human egalitarianism. And now, the way the left uses it is what I'm talking about. You, you mean human among human or human and animals? Human among human. Okay, egalitarianism. Human to human, okay. Okay, it's the false belief 
Not that all humans are politically equal before the law, which they are, but that people either are or should be equal in personal attributes and virtues, regardless of their natural endowments or individual choices, performance and character. This is a denial of reality. People are born with a varying degree of attributes um, or through personal choice are able to be of greater or lesser value to others. Animal egalitarianism or species egalitarianism is human egalitarianism taken one step further to include not just all humans but all animals. Not just in a political sense that all animals share right to life but in that same metaphysical sense that all animals are equal regardless of their attributes or values. They equate a rational man with a newborn seal or a cow or a chicken. You know, nature and reality have created many animal species with varying attributes and endowments. Superior to all is the rational animal, man. Those who would have us ban the seal hunt or give rights to animals are fighting reality. They're fighting metaphysics. They see that reality has created an injustice in their eyes, that all animals are not created equal, and are using man-made institutions like the courts to right this apparent <laughs> injustice. Yeah. Yeah, interesting contradiction <laughs> there. They will they'll inevitably fail, Bob, of course, as, as does anyone who denies reality. But not before people suffer as a consequence. It may be the thousands of sealers left unemployed or having to find other work when their livelihood is taken away. Or it may be the, the Swiss person imprisoned for keeping only one goldfish. When we all know that goldfish are social animals and have a right <laughs> to a companion. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, is it unbelievable? You, you, you often. It really sometimes is. I, I look at that and it. I wonder if those stories are real. I just can't <laughs> fathom it. Just just using the words like, for example, moral and rights together. A moral right. The person who coined that phrase, Tom Regan, has absolutely no idea what those words mean individually, because you cannot put them together. Right. They mean two different things. You know. It's like I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to. It's, hard to, it's so so non conceptual in, in its very nature. It's a, an epistemological debate, is what this is. It's it's or, what what do these concepts mean? Define the terms animal rights. Define morality. Define egalitarianism, and you'll find out that animals don't have rights. You know, people want to so much ascribe rights to objects, um, the unborn, animals, things, with with some, I think, hope in the back of their mind that somehow by doing that, they're protecting that that entity, whatever it may be to which they attach right to, because they know, hey, that works for me. If I have a right, I'm kind of protected. So maybe if I attach a right to this rock over here, <laughs> it'll be left alone, you know? So they want to do good, but it's misplaced. It's, it's a complete misunderstanding of the nature of a right, which has to do with action. The right to life means you have the right to take the action necessary to sustain, to your, sustain life. your life. Not that you have the right to force somebody else to sustain your life. Right. And that's, what it's, that's how it's become, you know, uh, become interpreted in, a, in, a, in an increasingly collectivist society. And that's what's happening even with the, with the Orwellian animalism they're talking about, how sharing is all about, uh, you know, they're all equal, which they find out immediately they aren't because uh, crows aren't very good at um, plowing fields. You know, and they find out the horses are a little bit better at that, right? right? And the pigs, of course, are the most intelligent of the farm animals, so they rise to the top. They're the political ones, and of the course, government. that's why they have all the apples and all the food, <laughs> right? And they talk everybody else into into the fact, oh, that's just how it has to be. Yeah. And then what do they do? They constantly 
offer to their, quote, public, this is where the whole concept of governing comes in, the uh, things that they already had before but put themselves in front of the crowd to, to tell them, like, okay, we'll, we'll let you watch TV as though they weren't already watching TV, <laughs> and they make themselves the agent of, you know, making that possible for it's them. Bread and circuses, too. Oh, 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 very much so. And so uh, certainly Orwell understood that. And A uh, hundred years ago. Well, remember, Orwell also came, he was a socialist originally. He was, yes. but not in the sense of that you might define socialism today. He, he actually, he was a, a it was liberal, yes. small L liberal. He believed in um, the value of everybody as human beings. Because back, you know, over 100 years ago, there was racism, there was sexism. He was living in a well, Victorian age, I guess that was, uh, late 1800s, where, where um, things today would not be tolerated. And I think that if I was back then, I might be defined as a small-s <laughs> socialist. Yep. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think we're going to have to take a break. And after the break, at the bottom of the hour, here we'll be coming back to talk about online voting, which I kind of think is one of many of uh, democracy's final indignities. I think we've passed the point of no return on democracy, too. Maybe we'll talk about that after these. Remove man... And the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. Remove man, and the produce of our labor will be our own. Remove man, and overnight we will become free and equal. Free and equal. Free and equal. I thought I was free. Will it mean no harnesses? If you believe that, you'll believe anything. Morning, Prime Minister. You have to leave the TV studios in five minutes. I'm ready. Uh, do you remember what the interview's about? Local government. Not the one thing I can do practically nothing about. These wretched councils are run by a bunch of corrupt morons who are too clever by half. The most a moron can be is less clever by half. <laughs> I mean, they are democratically elected, these councillors, aren't they? Depends how you define democracy. Only about 25% of people ever vote in a local election. And those who do simply regard it as a popularity poll for the real political leaders in Westminster. But uh, councillors are still representatives, aren't they? Well, who do they represent? We know who the councillor is. <laughs> do you know who your councillor is? Uh, no. Well, no, of course you do. <laughs> the councillors know this, so they spend four totally unaccountable years on a publicly subsidised ego trip. They ruin the inner cities, they let the schools fall to bits, they demoralise the police and undermine law and order. And then they blame me. <laughs> Will you say all that? I just said it, didn't you, Evie? <laughs> uh, no, I mean on television. No, of course not. You make me sound intolerant. <laughs> there you go with that British humour again, Robert. Love it. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. That, of course, was from Yes, Prime Minister. Um, talking about local councils, and of course that's way done, you know, done way back in the 1980s. Almost describes our councils of municipalities today. And for some reason, people seem to think that we can improve our local governance and governance on every level just by getting more people to vote, which is as insane as all those rightist concepts we were just talking about this morning. And 
you know, if there's one thing I can understand, I was just listening to the Prime Minister there talking about how, you know, they screw up the cities and then they blame him. Well, at least if they get 100% of us to vote, they can blame us. <laughs> right? And I think that's the objective. Right. That's the large objective. And one of the many, psych- psychologically. But here I see it again. It's in the paper. Um, what's the date here? Uh, March 15. Mail-in ballots may boost turnout more than net. Uh, speaking of the internet and that concept. Nancy Branscombe apparently introduced on the online voting concept, saying it's time has come. I heard her over on CJBK radio back on March 8th. And uh, there on that show, she cited Markham and Estonia as examples of where this works. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder what these two jurisdictions have with regard to so much better government as to oppo- you know, oppose how the rest of the world is working. I think she means they probably have it. Yes. Whether it works or not, what does that mean by work? Well, it works in the sense of uh, they have totally irresponsible government. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way. So my question is, why? 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 Why do we want to keep doing this nonsense? And there's only two reasons, and both, as far as I'm concerned, are, be- are better reasons to oppose online voting and mail-in voting and all those things. And one is, th- the main reason is, well, let's go to the second reason first, because it's, it's ridiculous. Inconvenience. Okay. It's inconvenience, says Nancy, on some days to yeah. go vote. Well, if it's that inconvenient, you know, stay home. Yes, please do. No problem. Um, end of story on that issue. Now, the other one is to get a higher vote, voter turnout, which is per- apparently currently in the 36 to 42% range, much higher than the 25% uh, referred to by the prime minister there in England. I'm surprised it's as high as it is. Yes. And apparently, under online um, voting, they were predicting it might go up to 68 to 72 percent, and this was called true democracy by Branscombe. Uh-huh. And she says it's just like banking and shopping, uh, utterly blurring the distinction between market transactions, which to the extent they are free, are also democratic, because everybody gets their own choice and gets what they want, with lawmaking and levying and involuntary taxes, which is only on the superficial level. That's what governments do, right? And so they're having people go online saying, well, voting is just the same as shopping, when what you're doing is voting for the use of force to be used against your neighbor. That's what government's all about. What you govern is the use of force. So in other words, if they get a majority of people voting, then they can, when they go out there and start using that force, they'll say, well, that's what the people want. They want us to use force. Of and course. a clear majority exactly. have voted for it. Which is exactly what happened in Animal Farm, which was just, I could have used Animal Farm as, as our whole show's <laughs> theme today all the way through, but I thought that would be overdoing it. Um, but of course, you know, if, if as, as governments spend more, more of our money... And it's not their money initially. It is after it's taken from us. But, you know, they can sort of force you where to shop and where to bank or you lose your home if you can't afford to do so. That's a totally different thing than shopping online, please. And to equate the two things like saying animals have the same rights as people. I think that uh, city council has made one drastic error, and that is that they call it the corporation for the city of London and then think that they can run it like a business. No business has the use of force. Well, you know, that's the first question I always ask any municipal politician who appears on this show or anybody in the municipal field. Do you think that this is a, is a government or a business? And I like, I like to get the feel of where they are on that. Cause that if they tells say that, oh, we're going to run government like a business, then stay away from them. Because they don't have the first idea of what government is. Right. And it's not a business. Although it, it, does, it does have business aspects about it in the provisions of certain basic services. But even there, the government shouldn't be running them, although it, mm-hmm. it has a jurisdiction over them. Now, I don't support any kind of electronic voting whatsoever. I don't mind counting. 
but I prefer to see a non-electronic source to the vote. Uh, my own experience has already taught me the voters list and the whole system of voting, including the regulation of parties in Canada, is basically corrupt from the top to the bottom. And municipalities are now being governed by the same bodies, which is totally a new development, folks, um, just in the last couple of elections that are governing provincial and federal jurisdictions. And the same stupid rules come down into it, basically making sure it's not a democracy. Um, you know, all electronic transactions, whether you like it or not, and messages, especially if you're talking about online voting, they leave an online trail. There is no privacy. Forget about it. If they can find porn on your computer, they can find out how you voted. And not only that, they can gerrymander it so easily, nobody would ever find out. How could you ever verify it? So here are just some of the reasons why I oppose online voting and other sim simple systems. Oh, mail-in ballots may boost the turnout and all that stuff. First of all, it devalues the vote. And I can never understand why any sane voter would want more people voting. Because more voters means less influence for each vote cast. One vote out of a hundred carries much more vote than one, or much more weight than one out of a thousand. So what's the issue here? Would you rather have a small, uh, perhaps not perfect, but more um, informed minority voting? Or a large, disaffected, disinterested, um, not, doesn't even understand government, you know, huge numbers of people just voting willy-nilly online for anything they want, creating utter, utter chaos. I always liked uh, what Jim Chapman had to say about voting. What's that? He says, if you don't know where your people stand on a particular issue, stay home. I agree. Stay home because you don't know what you're doing. Or if you know where they stand and you don't agree with it, stay home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. That's even more important. That's what I usually do, by the way. And, uh, you know, and the issue also avoids any discussion of ideas, policy, or taxation. What a great way to get around better governance. Well, we won't talk about the real issues, which are the stupid policies we have, the incredible rates of taxation going up forever and ever. Um, our green ideas. No, we won't talk about that. We'll just get more people voting, and then you can shut up. Yes. And that's basically what they want to tell you to do. And of course, it immediately creates an inequity and unfair voting access against people who don't have computers. That's one minor little detail you can talk about. But it erodes the concept of representative democracy with majority rule statism, as far as I'm concerned. It opens the way to more referendums, too, which um, it, it dumbs down the electorate, as I already said, too. And you get that very... And the more... Um, dumbed down the electorate is, the, the less democratic it can be. And it's interesting, too, the larger the voting pool, pool the dumber it is and the more left, mean, meaning the more disconnected with reality and reason. Maybe you know? that's why Nancy wants it. Uh, I think so. You know, think, think, imagine a 100% pool of votes cast, right? Everybody can vote. Everybody for anything. Children, the disinterested, the disaffected, the utterly ignorant. What would that do to the intelligence level of our informed democratic electorate that they keep talking about, you know, an informed majority? It would just bring it down. So uh, those are just some of the reasons that I, that, that I don't think. Also, the, uh, that you should have this kind of voting. I think that every voter should be required to get up off his butt go into a place where another member of the community can actually see his face. Yes. You know, and I think you should have picture identity, which is, by the way, not the, the situation in Ontario. And Ontario Freedom Party has been working to change that. You know, by, by the and, way, Bob... You should have photo identity when you go vote. Not everyone should just get a vote because they get, you know, have a vote. There's so many issues with this, and I can't even There's get so into all of them. so much corruption on that. And I actually sat on one of the province's committees on elections in Ontario uh, for the Freedom Party, by the mm -hmm. way. 
And um, the amount of corruption, the amount of abuse of our electoral system, if people out there actually knew what's been going on, they would be, well, actually, they wouldn't do anything about it. Who am I kidding? <laughs> no, they wouldn't. <laughs> it's like in George Orwell's thing. They're sitting there watching TV. Yep. More important things to do. But um, remember, the idea of voting originally came out of the concept of taxation, representation, you know, people who were taxed who mm-hmm. were represented. I don't even think I should be allowed to vote municipally because I live in an apartment building. I don't own the building. I don't pay taxes. I can move in and out, and nobody's coming after me if the taxes don't get paid. It's the landlord that owns that building. They may be included in my apartment rent. That doesn't mean I'm a taxpayer. Should he have a a vote for every tenant there? No. Just for himself? Just for himself. That's how it should be. That's how it used to be. However, that's, again, an argument against property taxes, which shouldn't be in in the place in the first place. If you want to expand the franchise to all people, then you have to deal on sales tax basis, which is another reason why I favor sales taxes. If you want the total franchise to everybody, then everyone should be a taxpayer. Everyone should have that representation, although that opens the door to other things. You need other, other restrictions because that means foreigners coming here would be paying our taxes as well, which is another advantage. Of Unless you taxes. give them a, a, a way to get out of paying the taxes. Well, uh, um, which you can do. Which you can. I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it uh, by restricting the vote to, say, citizenship or residency or mm-hmm. something like that. Yes. in addition to paying provincial taxes, which everyone here would. But there are so many issues... Uh, you know, and, and if you want to change municipal government, you have to change the councillors and candidates who are running, not get more people voting for the same people. It isn't going to change a thing. And why people think for a minute that that's going to change anything, if you've got Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and you've got 100% of the people voting for them, or 1% of the people, you've still got Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Exactly. Nothing's going to change. Do you think this is just and, a distraction before the upcoming election, just like old Canada was for Harper? I don't know. Well, let's have mail-in ballots. But, uh, but you hear about this all the time, and, and I think the politicians want to be seen to be doing something, you know, because they are doing a lot of things, and, and a lot of those things aren't working out the way that they would like them to work out. Got to leave it now, because I want to answer a, a letter we got um, over our show a couple of weeks ago, Robert. Mm-hmm. And uh, this sort of also might touch on municipal issues, and that, of course, deals with landfill sites. Someone thought that we didn't cover uh, enough of the details on landfill sites when we were actually talking about recycling of which landfills were a part, but we didn't get into the landfill sites. So before I uh, say, you know, give our answer to our letter writer, I thought we'd first uh, introduce this skit or this <laughs> piece of information from Penn & Teller again on landfill sites from the same uh, series of clips we used on the show last week, but I had to cut it short. We just didn't have enough time to, to get all the information in. So here's some more information on uh, what really happens with landfill sites and the, and the concept that landfill sites should not be an issue at all. There is plenty of land on this continent to accommodate all the garbage humanity can possibly produce in a harmless way for at least a millennium, and that's planning ahead, let me tell you. But here it is, and we'll be back right after this break. Well, as you can see from this map here, that little red dot is a landfill that could fit a thousand years of trash. It would be a big landfill, but again, it would be a small portion of the United States. Just a a dot. And how big is that dot? It's just 35 miles on each side and only 200 feet high. You could make it twice as big and throw in all the eagle records. Look, it would suck if you lived in that place, wherever it is, north of, I don't know, what's that, Texas down there? I don't know. But no one is suggesting we build an actual 35-mile-wide landfill. It's just for perspective, and because Angela loves to draw on fancy maps. Ask Mr. Wood about a landfill, and you'll get a mouthful, a mouthful of crappy oka. Federal rules that exist for a landfill design permit 
enormous holes in the ground with a big rubber diaper in it. A rubber diaper that's about one sixteenth of an inch thick that is presumed to perpetually contain the waste load that's put in it. They're very safe. Uh, the risks of a modern-day landfill, and according to data uh, analyzed from the EPA, are you know one in a billion, which is a lot less than most things we accept in life. The people who think that landfills are not a problem, the people who think that we have infinite landfill capacity, they should go live near a landfill, or at least go visit one. Okay, asshole, we went to the largest landfill in America, in Whittier, California. Environmental controls are very important at a landfill site. Joe Haworth, Information Officer, Sanitation Districts of Los Angeles County. It's a beautifully engineered site. It's got to be an environmentally sound and a, a decent neighbor. And it has to comply with some serious government regulations. Today in the United States, when you build a landfill, you have to find an appropriate site. It has to be away from groundwater. You have to worry about things like earthquakes and that sort of stuff. You have to lay down a foundation of three feet of basically impermeable clay. The liner system is actually several layers almost as much as like about seven or eight feet thick of clay and gravel and drainage type systems. The whole idea is to protect groundwater table. Okay, fine, but aren't landfills filthy? Believe it or not, all of this trash will be buried by the end of the day and it'll look much more like this well-groomed construction site. This bastard's gonna answer for everything, but what about the smelly gas? If you are putting organic material into a landfill, food scraps, yard trimmings, wood, paper, you're creating active decomposition. That active decomposition produces methane. Methane has to be vented off in order to keep a landfill from exploding. Okay, there's no way out of this, right? I mean, stinky methane gas, explosions. Methane gas is an energy gas, and we use it in this landfill site. We collect it and carry it over to an energy station where we produce uh, about 60,000 homes worth of electricity for at least the next 30 years. In your face, you recycling psychos. And here's the best news yet. Once you build a landfill, after you fill it in, you put a layer of dirt on top, you plant some stuff on it, and you turn it into a park or a golf course. It's nicer than my yard. Okay, we sure as do not need more golf courses. But there are no arguments for recycling left. Even after all of this, the environmental fascists want to summon the power of the federal government and force us all to recycle. Mandatory recycling is, is very helpful, making it the law that you have to recycle. 99.9% uh, .9 of the people stop at red lights, and when they know it's the law, most people recycle. Yeah, when you have cops with guns, people do what you say. Recycling doesn't work. It's too expensive. And there's plenty of trees and landfill space. Why use the trash police to force people to do something that isn't necessary? It's an issue of, of control. I think that that there are people who like to tell other people how to run their lives, and this is a great way to do it, to say, you need to do this instead of throwing your trash out. Uh, you need to pray to the garbage gods and spend your time sorting through uh, eggshells and coffee grounds instead of doing more productive things with your life. According to the New York Department of Sanitation, 40% of what you separate and recycle at home ultimately just ends up in the same landfill. The government is making busy work for you, eating up your time and money. If only we could think of something, anything more productive. Oh well, maybe someday.
If I discovered all my efforts were really meaningless in recycling, I would feel really betrayed by the community. And welcome back to Just Right, where we'll be with you just for a few more minutes. Uh, Robert, you've got the letter there. Let's read it for us, and I'll just give a quick response, at least as quick as I can, before the end of the hour. Sure, the letter is from uh, a woman, Therese. Dear Mr. Metz, dear Mr. Vaughn, I listened to your program, Waste from Energy Programs, Laying Waste to Recycling, with great interest last Thursday. This would be two weeks ago. Uh, Yes, actually, you're right, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Two weeks ago. Oh, yes. I myself am from Germany, where sorting waste and recycling are very well established in widespread systems. I have now heard several people voice opinions against recycling and was hoping to find some insightful facts and arguments on your show. I was disappointed. Following are a few of the reasons why. Some of the statements you made were left entirely without argumentation and thus remain completely unconvincing. You said that landfill sites are not a problem. They're the best for the environment, the best for future use, but didn't argue your point. Fact is that conventional untreated household waste contains large amounts of biodegradable matter, which degrades anaerobically in a landfill, producing large amounts of methane and a greenhouse gas 20 times, which is a greenhouse gas 20 times more harmful than CO2. Adding to this is the problem of leachates containing toxins. In Germany, both of these problems are addressed by laboriously sealing the sites, filtering the eluents, and containing the gas, which is then processed and used as biogas. All of these being labor-intensive processes, just as you argue argue recycling to be. This disproves the point that landfill usage is the best waste solution in regards to the environment or energy efficiency. Following statement also seems ridiculous when making a point against recycling. Quote, everything that is recycled will land in a landfill at one point in time anyway, because you can't destroy it, you can't beam it off the planet, it'll, it'll end up in the landfill in some point of time. You're just delaying the inevitable, unquote. Yeah, the quote of me. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is blatantly obvious that recycling an object will decrease the amount of waste headed to landfill site. This needs no further explanation. Certain plastics can even be burnt and used as a substitute for coal due to their high carbon content. This again lessens the landfill bound waste. Regarding this, you must also rethink your impression that recycling creates waste from energy. I'm not unwilling to question certain aspects of recycling and believe that we must always remain critical to some extent. I just hope that this will be done in a more sophisticated manner in the future. Thank you sincerely, (laughs) Therese. Thank you, Therese. Well, Therese, we can't promise you sophistication because that's one thing we don't do on this show. (laughs) But we do do our homework. And... You know, I think we've dealt with most of the, the the mechanical issues about landfills in the clip we just played. But I find that one one of the, what you've said about landfills and recycling suggests to me that you've dismissed the economic arguments being made as being valid measurements of environmental impact. Because I did go through what we covered on the last show, and I listed uh, uh, six six points at least, which you, which by the way you will be receiving by email from me later. But I noticed that they were all economic and weren't really about the environment as such. So it it struck me that, uh, you know, some people do not regard economic measurements as valid interpretations of of environmental impact. And I would say the opposite's true. Because when you say something is economic, it literally means that you're getting the best return or benefit for the least amount of energy expended for that benefit. And so the only relevant measurements outside of basic health and safety are economic. And why this is so was covered on our first two 2010 broadcasts. Uh, Waste not, want not is energy, is efficiency efficient. Remember we did that show? Yes. And, um, 
So I can certainly see that Therese is in the midst of a reassessment of certain viewpoints. But uh, bear in mind, it's only you yourself who will ultimately be doing any convincing. That's not what we do here. Though it's nice to learn uh, occasionally that somebody does get convinced. I think your skepticism is understandable. It's very justified. Though it has its pitfalls, skepticism is a powerful ally in the search for what is real. And I would suggest that you never abandon it, even with regard to anything you might hear from me or Robert or on this show just right. Avoid getting caught in the trap of the non-essential, irrelevant distractions such as those relating to specific operations of landfill sites. Listen, rest assured that responsible operators of such industries are fully aware of the risks, costs, and how to handle what are really more than little more than routine concerns to their industry. You know, they don't think about these things. But the public does as soon as public money and public interest is involved in anything. We want to know if the doctors are washing their hands. We want to know how many needles are in the surgery room, yeah. which is ir- irrelevant. We want to know what profit the, the, the gas companies making if we're forced to pay them because this is all irrelevant. What matters to you is the price. And so remember the essential arguments are always moral. You just can't get around that. Our choices about whether you want to live in a, in a society based on coercion in which government is a player in the game all the time or consent in which governments only act as the referees to make sure that we all you know, behave ourselves. And the, ac- the actions of government are not, exi- you know, exempt from this consideration. In fact, when we refer to government, we refer specifically to the governing of force in society. So everything the government does is an act of force. It's the moral principles behind such governance that determines whether we have good government, justice, or bad government, injustice. But both require the use of, of force, one proper, one the improper. And, and here's a biggie, you know, the relationship between living in a consensual society and having a clean environment is not obvious, and it's not self-evident by concrete observation, even though you can see it. But seeing the, quote, obvious is not the same as understanding what one sees, which is a conceptual and abstract process that can only be cultivated over time. And it is the process of, of applying reason to the facts and using reality as your arbiter that we are encouraging others to adopt in their consideration of the issues. That's really what we're doing here. And often, I mean, if you can apply reason and, and facts and reality to any case we make, and you bring me a case that's different from what we said, and you've done that, uh, odds are, 9 out of 10, I'm going to switch my mind on that subject, or at least take a different point of view. So, also, and, and uh, this is just for everyone's general info. Uh, this is about the show, Just Right. You know, we're, we're an infrequent sort of weekly news and commentary magazine program. It's generally our practice not to repeat previously covered arguments since we sort of systematically archive them on our website. And uh, that's sort of how I thought about doing this when, we start, when I started doing this show because I figured I'm never going to get to everything I want to c- get covered. And the questions I get asked the most are the ones that I want to deal with and uh, get them all on record. So that if you go back to our site, just, just write media.org, you can find answers to these questions and, and a lot more. We've done so many things on landfills, and we'll do more in the future as well. So uh, that's one of the reasons we try not to repeat exact material, though we certainly repeat a lot of principles and some of the same themes. But I guess that's it for today. We've got to get out of here, don't we, John? I think I'm getting the signal there. Well, let's just do that. Hope you folks join us again next week, and do write us your letters. Until then, you know what to do. Be right active right, stay right, and think right. We'll see you next week. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I used to remember the 80s on cocaine using tomorrow's energy today. (laughs) 
one good thing came out of cocaine abuse in my country. It taught Americans the metric system. It did. How many kilometers in a mile? I don't know. How many grams in an ounce? 28, you son of a bitch, and don't show me! Ah! Now you get it, okay. I'll wait for you. <laughs>